it's always a little bittersweet uh, to come to the end of a of a book that we have spent time in, and we spent quite a bit of time in First Corinthians this year. I think we started it at the beginning of this year, and we've just now concluding it. Some eight months later, we've had some breaks along the way. We looked at uh, six church challenges in this particular letter that Paul writes to this messy church. What that means for our sins being forgiven and our new life being given and our for, and, and, and being granted eternal life and the hope of a bodily resurrection. Then we looked at the future hope of the resurrection, and we talked about what will that resurrection body actually be? What will that resurrected existence actually look like? What will it be like to live in a resurrected body? And so this morning we conclude by looking at how the resurrection is supposed to affect us now. Until we get to heaven... Until we are with the Lord forever, how is the resurrection to give us hope? And I want to talk about three specific ways that the resurrection gives us present hope until the future resurrection. An aboundingness in the work of the Lord. We are be to, to be devoted to the work of the Lord. He's not writing this to pastors as though they were the only ones devoted to the work of the Lord or to deacons, as though they were the only ones, but to brothers, to all the church. They are to be abounding. They are to be steadfast and immovable and bubbling over with activity for the Lord because they know that their labor in the Lord, based on the resurrection of Christ, is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not worthless. So we can give our whole lives to serving, following, obeying the Lord Jesus and it won't be wasted. But what does that mean? What does it mean to abound in the work of the Lord? What is, what is the work of the Lord? And what does it mean to abound in it? Well, that's the point of this morning's sermon. It's to fill out for us how we as ordinary Christians abound in the work of the Lord. What does the work of the Lord consist of? We're going to see three things in chapter 15 and 16 largely that I think the work of the Lord consists of. So if you ask, okay, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a single person, I'm a teacher, I work, raise a family or don't, or have all these responsibilities in my life, what does it mean for me to abound in the work of the Lord in the midst of all that? What is my labor in the Lord? That's what we're going to look at this morning. First of all, because of the resurrection, brothers and sisters, our speaking for Christ is not in vain. That's the first part of our labor in the Lord, is we speak on behalf of Jesus to other people about Jesus. And I want to show you this. We've already seen it in 1 Corinthians. But look back at chapter 11. Chapter 12, either on your phone or in your lap. And look at the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11. Please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul says that we are to do everything within our power, just like he does and describes of himself in chapters 9 and 10, deny whatever rights we need to deny, give up whatever freedoms we need to give up, in order that people might be reached for Christ, that they might be saved. And he calls upon the church to imitate him in that. So if anybody's going to be reached for Christ, 
it's not just going to because it's not just going to be because we live a certain way, right? The gospel is a message that has to be shared and spoken. So yes, we live a certain way, but we also speak of Christ as we live that way. I'm reminded of what Acts 8 says, where you remember that particular the apostles are being confined and persecuted, and they're not able to get out and share the gospel as freely as they were able to do due to the persecution. And yet it says at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 that the disciples our preaching of the gospel includes telling people, like we, we read at the beginning of chapter 15, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ rose again. However, Paul says in verse 13, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Paul refers to that twice in these verses, in verses 13 and verse 16. So what's the implication then if Christ isn't raised? Well, because we proclaim a gospel, we speak of a Christ who is risen then we're preaching something that's not true. We're lying. We're making up a myth. And there's no power in a myth or a lie to change anyone's life now or for eternity. Anyone who preaches or believes the gospel is believing it in vain if Christ isn't raised. If Christ didn't defeat death, we won't defeat it either. We'll meet our grave. And also, Paul says in verse 15, we're, we're lying about God. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead by God's Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we're lying about what God did. We're by our life, and I don't think he'd be too happy about that. However, Paul says in verse 20, Christ, in fact, has been raised. <laughs> and that means our labor in the Lord, that is our speaking for Christ, our preaching of the gospel, is not in vain. It does have the power to change lives. We saw that, right, just a few weeks ago, when, when Paul in verses 8 through 11 describes his own life. Let me remind you of what we saw there. He says, for I am the least of all the apostles, verse 9, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. From a persecutor to a preacher. That's what the gospel does. It makes persecutors into preachers. So therefore, Paul didn't believe in vain, right? When he believed the gospel, he was radically transformed by the gospel. When you believe the gospel... You were changed by the gospel. It does have the power to change lives, which means your sins really are forgiven. Verse 17. You will not perish when you die. Verse 18. We are speaking the truth about God based on historically verifiable reality. And we are of all people. If Christ is not raised, then preaching the gospel is in Acts 29. Let's read that again. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is a strange thing. It's one of the most difficult verses, not only in 1 Corinthians, but also really in all of Scripture to understand. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is because Paul doesn't tell us what it means. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't either define what this practice is, he doesn't approve of it, he doesn't disapprove of it. He just acknowledges it. Now, one commentator says that there's at least 40 different 
ideas among scholars as to what baptism for the dead was in Corinth. This is what happens when Bible scholars get a hold of verses that the Bible doesn't explain. We just, obviously, we have to take shots at it, but we have no idea. But that really, what the baptism on behalf of the dead is, is not the point anyway of the passage, right? Let's read it again. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? His point is, is whatever this practice is that they're doing, he doesn't approve of it. Whatever this practice is, it doesn't benefit anybody if there's no resurrection. Now, I think, I'll go ahead and give you my idea about it, but take this with a big grain of salt because Paul doesn't even explain it, and it's very difficult to even understand. Probably what being baptized for the dead or on behalf of the dead is referring to is someone being baptized in the place of someone else who has already died for their salvation. Baptism is important, right? That's why we baptized even this morning. It's a, important. It's a, it, it's a symbol that shows that we're united to Christ. But what about those who were baptized who were Christian, or what about those who were Christians that the church saw as who had not yet been baptized? Will they be saved? Well, perhaps if Paul meant that's what baptism, then perhaps a Christian would be baptized on that behalf of the person, the Christian who's already passed away. But if that's what it means, Paul's point is still the same. It doesn't matter if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. You're just getting wet for somebody else. So whatever the practice was, Paul says it's pointless if there's no bodily resurrection from the dead. But brothers and sisters, we aren't wasting our time or running a fool's errand when we share the gospel with our family members, with our kids, our grandkids, our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors. I'm not wasting my life and your pastors aren't wasting their lives and spending time preparing sermons about the gospel We're not wasting our time together this morning sitting under the teaching of God's Word or in Sunday school or in other gatherings. So press on, knowing that because of the resurrection, every time you speak for Christ, you're telling the truth. And it will come to pass and be vindicated in the day that He returns. So keep talking. Don't you dare close your mouth about the glory and the coming of Jesus Christ the only message that can save anybody. And therefore, we must not stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. Because of the resurrection, our speaking for Christ is not in vain. Secondly, because of the resurrection, our suffering for Christ is not in vain. Our suffering for Christ is not in vain. A big part of the work of the Lord, if you know this from just reading the Bible, is suffering with Christ. Jesus said that as his people, we would suffer with him. He says in Acts 14.22, Paul tells the church that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy, to Timothy and to all of us, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will have suffering as we speak about Christ. It will not all be easy and it will not all go well. Notice how Paul summarizes the way his life for Christ is turning out. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I wonder, can we, rec- can we recognize any of that? Well, surely Paul has a unique calling, right? He's an apostle. And Jesus promised him 
when he converted him that this guy is going to suffer a lot for my sake. So I think it's safe to say that there is an unusual amount of suffering in the life of the Apostle Paul as he's a Jew converted to Christ, taking the gospel to the Gentiles for the very first time. There is a significant amount of suffering involved there. Some of those dangers he describes in 2 Corinthians, where he says in chapter 11, verse 26, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. This is why Paul can say, I'm in danger everywhere I go. Additionally, he says that he takes great risks for Christ. Notice what he says in verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Now, does he mean he physically dies and gets resurrected every single day? No. He means the dangers that he faces open him up to the possibility of death every single day. And he knows that, and he embraces that. This is the commitment that Jesus said would be required to obey and follow him. He said in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, keep it from all danger, keep it from the possibility of dying, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We may not be required to physically die for Christ, but you are required to be willing to. You are required to die to yourself every day and take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus. The Christian life does require great self-denial. Paul gives some of those ways in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. What must a Paul's back look like? If he took off his shirt, what kind of scar tissue would be there? I imagine it looked horrendous. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and toil and hardship. Hunger, food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Brothers and sisters, if Paul paid that kind of price, Jesus rose from the dead as one preacher used to say, we can get out of bed, right? That was Keith Green, by the way. In describing other afflictions met by God's faith-filled people, the writer to the Hebrews says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, none of us is facing that reality right now. And you, you shouldn't feel overwhelmingly guilty that you don't face that reality. I don't face that reality. But we must 
be ready to face those realities. The picture of how God's people must suffer in this life is not a pretty picture. And just because we don't face the physical persecution of this life doesn't mean we don't suffer with Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 describes our decaying bodies as a way in which we suffer for Christ. All the physical challenges that Pastor Thad just prayed about, all the trials that people are experiencing in our congregation, those are all a part of suffering with Christ. Those aren't any less significant than Paul's sufferings in the eyes of Jesus. Because whatever he sends our way, as we will be a form of suffering for and with him. This is the kind of opposition that's expected by Paul, and it should be expected by us. This is why he says in chapter 16, verse 9, a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Brothers and sisters, it's both and. We don't get the glory cloud coming down. Praise Lord, hallelujah, no trials ever. Health, wealth, prosperity. Because the king, we're king's kids. King's kids get killed because the king got killed. So turn off Christian television. Unless a good Bible preacher is on there who will tell you things like that. And this is part of the reason why Paul closes the letter the way he does. He wants to calibrate our expectations appropriately. He wants us to get a handle on this reality because, listen, nothing will make you want to ditch suffering faster than you don't believe it's worth anything. If it's not working and producing, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison... If we don't believe Romans 8, that if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. If we don't believe that, we'll cave under suffering. We'll be crippled by suffering. We'll be ineffective in our suffering. Because we won't show out of our suffering the value and the beauty and the worthiness of Jesus. So this is why Paul calls the believers in Corinth and us in verse 13 of chapter 16 to be watchful and to stand firm in the faith. Don't waver, as he says in verse 58 of chapter 15. He says in verse 13 of chapter 16, act like men, be strong. That applies to women too. In the first century, the phrase act like men just meant be courageous. So Paul is calling all believers, men and women alike, to show courage in the truth. He's calling us not to allow a cultural pressure to make us change or abandon biblical truth, but to bravely stand in the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever the culture pushes against us or whatever God sends our way by way of suffering. The point is, is that risk-taking activities for the sake of the gospel are done in vain if there is no resurrection. Yet, living for Christ necessitates that we do hard things. Look at verse 32 of chapter 15. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He says, what if I was put in an arena to be killed as a Christian by wild beasts, which happened to Christians in the first century as sport. He says, if the dead are not raised, verse 32, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So what's the Christian life then? Well, it's not a life where we just eat, drink, and are merry. 
Now, surely we eat and drink as Christians, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So we can eat or drink to the glory of God and we can be married to the glory of God, but that's not what our life is about. Our life is not about maximizing comfort, maximizing ease, no suffering, minimize risk, don't do anything that might get us in trouble for Jesus. We want to lay low and we want to try to avoid anything. That's not biblical discipleship. And that's not what Christ is calling us to do. Because our living for Christ includes resisting sin. Notice verse 33. It means we don't go along with the crowd. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, verse 34, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He says, you all are living and you're compromising with the Corinthian culture all around you. We've seen that repeatedly in this letter, haven't we? With their sexual ethics, which is coming hard against the church right now. There will be lawsuits in our day. We're already seeing them against Christians, Christian schools, Christian institutions, Christian churches that hold to biblical sexual ethics. Are we going to cave on that? If we cave on it, we're not worthy to be called a Christian church. Now we hold the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Brothers and sisters, I'm not quite sure Christians are passing that test in this day. I don't see a lot of love and self-sacrifice on the part of the broader church in America right now. I see a lot of buckling down and fighting with the ways and the weapons of the world. Entering politics the same way. Challenging, engaging the culture in the same way. Did you hear just a few weeks ago about when the, when the political talk amps way up and they said, uh, well, what about turn the other cheek? And the guy said, well, there's only so many cheeks we can turn before we just have to fight. Oh, really? Jesus gave us that permission, huh? No, he didn't. That is a false gospel. I don't care if it comes from the right or the left. We must be equipped to know what Christ calls us to do, and it's not just coasting along with the things of the world, whether that be the worldliness of immorality or the worldliness of a so-called morality. We must be devoted to Christ above all, and Christ must be what we are standing for and on, not some agenda of someone else. This is an important principle to remember because even as we stand firm, we must never be harsh. That's why Paul says in chapter 16, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Let no one think that you're not loving. See, because when the pressure's hot and the church is persecuted, standing firm often draws out our flesh and makes us fight and engage with the weapons of warfare of the world. So standing firm then would mean standing with humility, recognizing that we know Jesus only by grace and always extending the good news of reconciliation with God for anyone who will trust in Christ. Because of the resurrection, brothers and sisters, our daily self-denial, our costly obedience, our resistance to sin, our fighting against the corrupting influences of the world are not in vain. All our efforts to fight our own sin and cultivate holiness and resist conformity to the world are not for nothing.
That's what the resurrection ensures. And this is why we read in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. Do we see the church doing that? Are we doing that? People start talking against the church, saying bad things about the church. Do you say, yes, yes. Or do we say, PR campaign, smear them. No, we are glad and we rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. We fight, engage the world, lose the reward. You are blessed when you are insulted. Not for being a jerk, but for standing in love and truth for Jesus. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Does it say to lend to people and give things to people who like you? Well, I lend things to them because they always give it back. You know, I lend to people and then they lend back to me. That's the way it works. You know, we're reciprocal like that. And if I try to lend to somebody and they shun me or ignore me or don't do the same thing, well, I stop loving them. That's not what Jesus says to do. He says, love your enemies. Do what is good to them. Lend to them, expecting nothing in return. See, we live in an age that's highly polarized. You know this already. And because it's so polarized, anyone who's not with you on everything is your enemy. Brothers and sisters, we're called to love our enemies. And that will make us stand out from everybody else who's trying to get us to hate each other. We must love our enemies. We must do what is good. Then, Jesus says, your reward will be great and you'll be called children of the Most High. Why will we be called children of the Most High? Because God loves his enemies every day. And if we're God's people, we love ours too. That's how we know who the children are and the children of the devil are. Children of the devil love their friends, hate their enemies. Children of God love their friends and their enemies with self-sacrificial love, expecting nothing in return but from our Father in heaven on the day of judgment. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Aren't you thankful for that? As you, you say, this is hard, Pastor Mark. This is hard. I know it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us. When we're insulted, when we're misunderstood, when we're falsely accused, when we're treated as an enemy, when we're misunderstood, when we have all kinds of physical trials or suffering, it can be so easy to just say, woe is me. But Romans 8.18 says, Paul says, when I consider this and I think about the resurrection and I think about the glory to come, it's not even worth comparing and then 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. This is what Paul said his body was like. We saw what happened to Paul's body. And he says, when he looks at all of that, he says, light, momentary affliction. Now how can he say that? He's a fool! What are you talking about? He says that because... God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Every amount of suffering that I endure for the sake of Jesus, over and over and over again, we see your reward is great in heaven. Your reward will be great. You will be called children of the Most High. The glory will not be compared, even be, even be compared to what we will be revealed. And the eternal weight of glory is stacking up and stacking up and stacking up with every suffering that you endure. You are getting more and more glory to come.
And so we don't look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. We fix our eyes on what is eternal. And that's what will help us press on in suffering with Christ. Thirdly and finally, because of the resurrection, our service for Christ is not in vain. Our service for Christ is not in vain. Now, I just want you to, we're just going to kind of summarize chapter 16 here. These are a lot of concluding words that Paul gives as often in his letters. He's saying hi to people. He's reminding people of different things. But as I was looking at that again this week, I was just struck how relevant all this is for us. I tend to pass over the end of Paul's letters thinking they're like a letter written to somebody that I don't even know. We don't read those very carefully. But the more I read it and thought about it, the more I thought about there is so much here for us. And I'm only going to be I have time to touch on it here this morning. First thing that Paul says that our service for Christ consists of in chapter 16 is giving to each other financially, helping needy members of the church with their needs. And Paul says this is a burden that he has shared across the churches, and he asked the Corinthian church to give an offering as he did the Galatian church. So we see in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Now in Romans 15, he says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Everywhere Paul went, in all of his missionary journeys, somebody was carrying a financial gift for the church he was coming to visit. He was going to make sure that churches took care of churches, that there were no needs among them. In 2 Corinthians, he reminds the church of the sacrificial example of the Macedonian Christians for the church in Jerusalem. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. He didn't have to pressure them to do this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's probably the most beautiful picture of sacrificial giving we get in the entire Bible. And in light of this, he calls on the Corinthians to give generously. He wants them, each one of them, according to verse 2, to set aside something each week, a portion of their income, and bring it to the church gathering and give it for the sake of relieving the poor saints in Jerusalem. He would send the money with several representatives chosen by Corinth. Notice what he says in verse 3. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Notice how Paul is being above reproach regarding finances. He doesn't want him to be accused of putting this in his own pocket. So he says, people that you trust, they're going to come with me with your offering to make sure it gets handled the right way and it gets to where it's supposed to go. This is how much care Paul had when he was willing to under... And, how much, and that would be cost to him. He's got to pay for them to go with him. And he's willing to endure the cost to prevent even appearance of misuse of funds on, the behalf, on his behalf. Verse 5, he continues to call them to giving, albeit in a different form. He tells them of his plan to visit them in verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And then he writes them in 2 Corinthians, telling them about the Macedonian offering that he received there. He tells them of his plan to visit them and stay with them, perhaps even through the winter in verse 6. He makes clear and be with you a while. He says, I'm going to visit, I'm going to stay with you, I'm going to spend the winter, I'm not just going to be passing through, I'm going to spend some time with you. 
Now, this is again, is an ask of the church. He's already asked them, be sacrificial and give an offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And now he says, I'm going to come stay for a while. I'm going to be there. Do you think that's a kind of a burden for a church to host an apostle? I think so. It's an additional challenge. Take care of Paul, housing him, providing for him while he's among them, which would be several months. That's a long time. And then he makes a bigger ask that they might also send him on a way worthy of God in verse 6. So not only is he asking them for take care of him while he's there, but then he's like, also make sure that I get something to leave and I'm not broke. So until that Paul's earlier in 1 Corinthians that he was saying to remind the church of the apostles in chapter 4, verse 17, he calls upon the church to put in these, take care of it, receive them to manner. You know, Corinthians didn't entirely like Paul. We know this from the letter. So he's sending Timothy ahead. Can you imagine you're being Timothy? Great. I get to go represent Paul to the church that doesn't like him. And Timothy was already a little bit nervous and fearful. Anyway, he was a younger man. But Paul says, put him at ease. Put him at ease. Don't make him stressed. Care for him. And then we read that Timothy came at Paul's request and he was to be received in like manner. Note that the church today should follow a similar principle with respect to missionaries, pastors, and leaders. And I just want to commend you in the two ways you've done that this past year with A.W. and J.P. and with the Baldwins. We have received those that are off the field to care for them, and I just wanted to say the Lord is pleased with your sacrifice. And you have served the Lord Jesus well, and I think our missionaries would say that as well. And insofar as pastors and elders and missionaries are all fallible and sinful, and we all are, but we're bringing the apostles' teaching, and thus Paul says, love them, respect them, honor them. Matthew Henry says, Christians should be very careful not to pour contempt on any, but especially on ministers, the faithful ministers of Christ. These, whether young or old, are to be held in high esteem for their work. And to top it all off, Paul just keeps asking them. He says, I told the apostles to come, verse 12. Now, recall from earlier the letter, urging him to come would have been far from his mind as that would mean sending one whom the Corinthians viewed as Paul's rival. But the apostle had the gospel foremost in his mind and was humble enough to recognize the good that Apollos could do for the Corinthians, and therefore he urged Apollos to go to Corinth. But Apollos said, I'm not going to go right now. That's what he says in verse 12. Now, imagine this church saying at this point, Whoo, finally, some relief. we got to give an offering. we got to care for Paul. We got to care for Timothy. Now Apollos is coming. Wait a minute. He's not coming? All right. <laughs> One less guy to take care of. But Paul says still more. He calls them to be submissive to their leaders in verses 15 and 16 and give recognition to those who probably brought the Corinthian letter to him in verses 17 and 18 and be eager to lovingly greet other Christians and do it all out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me conclude. Perhaps you're feeling a little bit of the same way the Corinthians were probably feeling. Giving generously, over and over again, showing hospitality, meeting needs, 
housing brothers and sisters, alleviating financial burdens, obeying biblical requirements of our church, giving honor, eagerly being other-oriented by greeting and speaking and loving our fellow church members with a lot more things on your heart than you came in with because now you're carrying the burdens of your brothers and sisters and not just your own burdens. Say, if I stick around, Pastor Mark, I'm going to hear all kinds of things that are going to break my heart. Yeah, you will. And that's the body of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do for each other. Weep with, one, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We strive to care well for each other. We try to meet needs. We try to take care of each other. We try to find out what's going on in each other's lives. Pray for one another. All this is serving the Lord Jesus Christ in the context of his church. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, all of this is not in vain. You say, Pastor Mark, how, do, how are we motivated to do this? Speak for Christ, suffer with Christ, serve Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is where you get the resources. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. You will never sacrifice more. You will never serve more. You will never do anything more for Jesus than Jesus has done for you. It will be a two-thousandth of a percent. And if you served him your whole life. But that two-thousandth of a percent is precious beyond belief to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it just goes to show you that he poured out so much more for us than he will ever call us to pour out for him. Has any of us ever given anything close to what Christ has given? Who was richer than Christ? And yet who became poorer than Christ? And who made more people rich for eternity through his 33 years of poverty than the Lord Jesus Christ? The point is this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. We don't do this because we feel obligated to. We do it because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all... Notice this. This is the encouragement. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. You are not left to yourself in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.11, serve God in the strength that God supplies. He will give you grace, all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you may abound. Your abounding in the work of the Lord is because God is abounding in you. He is enabling you by His grace to abound. You're not willing this into existence. You're living out the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, as it's written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable, inexpressible gift. See, brothers and sisters, you are not alone. The gospel and the rich supply of Christ is given to us.
So maybe you're here this morning and you've come and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm not kind of cracking with a lot of this. I don't speak for Christ. I don't suffer with Christ. Sure. It doesn't matter how you came in. The gospel is sufficient. Christ became poor so that you might be made rich, not financially rich, eternally rich. He experienced earthly poverty, heavenly glories that he enjoyed in order to experience life in our own self and your own sin. But I, I call you to a higher life, a more glorious life, a better life. Living as your own master is such a miserable life in the end. Living with Christ as Lord is a life that brings value, meaning, and eternal purpose forever, no matter what it costs us in this life. So brothers and sisters, continue to speak for him, continue to suffer with him, continue to serve him, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you again this morning for your word. And we pause now just to take a moment to pray. Brothers and sisters, I just want to call upon you to pray silently in your seat just for 30 seconds. And the Lord might call you to respond to the word this morning. And I will be closing us in prayer in just a moment. And we'll stand. Of our resurrection knowing that we are united to the risen one who will never die and whose body will never see corruption, who right now is at your right hand reigning forever in a glorified human body that he will never, ever not have. One God, the God-man forever, fully God, truly God, fully man, truly man, forever. And because we are united by faith to him, we too will escape death and be brought into your presence and receive a resurrection beyond all that we can compare to anything in this world now. Keep us faithful to you. Keep us, our eyes fixed on the end.